0: Now, friends, we come to the third chapter. Now, last time we saw the birthday of the church, a day that can never be repeated, the day of Pentecost. The day before Pentecost, there was no church. The day after Pentecost, there was a church because the Holy Spirit had become incarnate now in believers. He wanted to fill them, fill them with his love, power, and blessing for service. And this is the place where we are, a very important place in the early church now. And you could never repeat Bethlehem, and you can't repeat Pentecost. But we do need today the power of the Holy Spirit, but we don't have to seek him. Thank God he's in the world, convicting the world, restraining evil in the world, but he's also indwelling believers. Now, in this third chapter, we have, first of all, the healing of the lame man in the first 11 verses. Then we have, in verses 12 through 26, the appealing and revealing address of Simon Peter. And then we have believing 5,000 men. And this is a tremendous section, by the way. Now, as we get into this section, let me begin to read. Verse 1, Acts 3. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. Now, they went up, apparently, at the time of the evening sacrifice, when the High priest went in, or rather was formerly the high priest. But you find out in the Gospel of Luke that Zacharias went in. He was not really the high priest, but he served at the golden altar. And that golden altar of incense speaks of prayer. And so this was the time of prayer. And that meant that a great company were there in the temple area praying. And we're told, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Now, this lame man was a man who had been lame from his mother's womb. He was born this way. And he was brought every day put there at the gate of the temple, and what a contrast. He was put by the gate that's called beautiful. Here is a beautiful gate, the work of man. Here is a man, though, that's marred. A man can make beautiful things, but he can't improve himself. He can't do a work there at all. Oh, he can do a little bit of trimming on the outside. He can get his haircut, and his fingernails manicured, and take a bath now and then and use some deodorant. But my friend, he never can change that old nature that he has. What a contrast here. The beautiful gate of the temple, and here is a man, a lame from his mother's womb. Now he was there to beg for alms. This was the way that he lived, of course. Now, who's seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask an alms. Now, this is also revealing, by the way, Peter and John, even after the day of Pentecost, are going up to the temple, and they're going up to the temple to pray. I take it that the believers, we must repeat again, they are 100% Israelites that are there, are proselytes, And they continued to go to the temple in prayer, and here they go. And this man, this poor lame man, he saw Peter and John. He thought they'd probably be able to give him something. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. When he looked at these two men, he thought, my, these two men have asked me to look at them, and I certainly will receive something. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. One of the early saints in the church walked in one day in Rome where the pope was counting the money. And when he saw he'd walked in upon something apparently was private, he started to walk out. And the pope said to him, No longer can the church say silver and gold, have I none. And this man, without even turning back, he just continued to walk out. But he said, No longer can the church say to the impotent man, rise and walk. And today the church has wealth. I suppose if you put together the holdings of the church, and when I say church, I mean church properties of all groups, denominations, non-denominations across this country, why I'm confident it would be much wealthier than the Standard Oil Company or much wealthier than any other organization. But the church today lacks power, the same position that it was in even before it had advanced several hundred years. Now, notice, though, what they do here. "...and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength." Now, Dr. Luke wrote this, and you'll notice when Dr. Luke records a miracle He gives you a great many details you would not get anywhere else. He speaks now specifically of what happened. The man's feet and ankle bones were the problem. They were absolutely, I suppose, no muscles there, nerves there at all. And this is the miracle that was performed. And notice, he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, friends, don't miss this word leaping that has occurred here now for two times in one verse, because we're going to find something quite interesting in this chapter. And that is, you'll find that Peter is going to offer the kingdom to the nation again, because right now, friend. The church is 100% Israel. There are none from the outside that are Gentiles. The church began at Jerusalem. It's to go to the ends of the earth. Now, this is the Jerusalem period. And don't try to tell me it's another dispensation. We have hyper-dispensationalists today, and they say, well, this was a different dispensation. It's not different at all. The Thing is, you have a period of transition, just as the Lord said there would be you to begin at Jerusalem. They didn't go out and begin at the end of the earth. Now, he's going to give them an opportunity to receive the kingdom again. It'll be the final opportunity. And what would be the mark of the kingdom? Why, we're told that in that day that the lame will leap. Now, if you go over to the 35th chapter of Isaiah, you find a picture of the millennium of the kingdom, and the desert will blossom as the rose. And verse 6 of Isaiah 35 says, Then shall the lame man leap as a heart. This is no accident that this is the miracle and that this man leaped. Why, every instructed Israelite going up to the temple there that day, they marveled at this. They knew this could be actually the beginning of the kingdom. It could well be. And all they needed was the Messiah. But he's been crucified, raised from the dead, sent back to heaven. He's God's right hand. But he'll come again. And if they had received him, he'd come at that time. Now, will you notice, as he goes on here, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. That's verse 9. Now, verse 10. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. They recognized the man. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. They caught the significance of it. And I'm afraid a great many today haven't caught the significance of this record that Dr. Luke has given us. Now, notice verse 11. And as the lame man which was healed helped Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering, is this the beginning of the kingdom? Great things that happened in Jerusalem in the past few weeks. You'd had the crucifixion of Jesus, resurrection, his ascension, and the day of Pentecost. They're amazed what is really taking place. Now you have this sermon or address of Simon Peter. Now listen to this. This is a marvelous sermon. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, "...Ye men of Israel." Now, he didn't say, ye men of Southern California. He's talking to ye men of Israel. This is the Jerusalem period, friends. We're in a transition period. The church is beginning to move out, but it hasn't moved out yet. No one in Rome has heard yet. No one in America had heard. No one in England had heard. This is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. May I pause to say this, and I'd like to say it sweetly and kindly, but I wish that folk, in reading the Bible, would bring to it the same common sense that they use in reading other books. This is God's Word, but you don't have to assume some way out yonder viewpoint. This deals with us right where we are, and it's very important to see. Now, will you notice here, and he says, ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power, our holiness, we had made this man to walk? Now again, he's directing them, friends, back to the Old Testament. Don't look at us, Peter says. This is not because of us. But he said, you ought to recognize that it is not the fulfilling, because they didn't accept the Lord Jesus at that time. They didn't repent and turn to him. But the important thing is this, that they were acquainted with Zechariah 12.10. Listen to this. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, we're talking about Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The day is coming. He makes it very clear. The day is coming when this one will come. It hasn't been fulfilled yet the second time, and these things will be fulfilled. Now, Peter's going to tell him it'd be fulfilled now if you'd only turn to him. Now, again, you have over in Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments, and do them. And then, if you go back to the 12th chapter of Isaiah, that, by the way, is a remarkable chapter, just six verse And it speaks of the worship during the time the kingdom is here. And it will be a time of praising God. And behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Again and again. And then if you went over to the... 35th chapter of Isaiah. Again, you would find a reference there, and I'll turn and read that right now. Verse 10 of the 35th of Isaiah. And the ransom of the Lord shall return, come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon the heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sigh and shall flee away. They ought to see that in this lame man, there is a miniature for the whole nation if they but turn to God. Now listen to Simon Peter. He says, "...the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his Son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go." "...but ye denied the Holy One, and just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, wherefore we are witnesses." Here he goes again. Simon Peter will never preach a sermon, but he doesn't mention the resurrection. Paul won't either. But today there are many sermons preached without a mention of the resurrection. Verse 15, And they kill the prince of life, whom God raised up from the dead, whereof we are witnesses, and his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now, don't you see that man leaping now? That is what they'll do in the kingdom. The question is, do you want the Messiah to come back? Do you want to receive him? Now he says, and now, brethren, I what? I know that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Now listen, repent ye therefore, and be converted, and again, this matter of be converted, if you would go over to Isaiah 43:25, listen to this, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Listen to this, repent thee therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. Now, the question has always been, if they had accepted Jesus, would he have returned to the earth? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. Peter says he would. Then what would be God's program after that? Now, I'd like to let you in on something today, and I hope you will not... Breathe a word to this. This is just between you and me. I don't know what would happen. <laughs> Somebody says, you mean you don't know what it happen? I sure don't. And I have news for you. Nobody else knows except God. These iffy questions, if they didn't. I want to say this. They didn't. And that is the answer to your iffy questions. They didn't. So anything else is just nothing in the world with the wildest kind of speculation. He shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restitution of all things. Now, this is the verse that some of these folk who believe eventually everything and every person will be saved, they use it which says the times of restitution of all things. Well, the all things here are the all things that are to be the subject of restitution. Paul said, for instance, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now, he didn't mean all things in God's universe. Of course, all the things he had to lose, he lost them. And these are the things that are to be restored. And the scripture makes it clear that all is not to be. Whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, he's speaking to these people. And Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Now, they were on the verge of a great judgment. Seventy A.D., Titus came, destroyed the city. Thousands of them, it's estimated over a million of them, perished and the rest sold into slavery throughout the Roman Empire. Judgment did come upon these people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Now listen to him. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. How will they be blessed? Under you first God, having raised up his son Jesus. Send him to bless you, turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Now, the thing that happened is just simply this that he's giving them a final chance to accept the Messiah. This is something that we need to recognize here, that you're in a transition period. And we'll find out a little later on when Paul comes on the scene that by that time this man called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, that no longer will the Messiah come on the basis of this nation, because they've had the opportunity and turned it down. Now, what would have happened is merely speculation had they turned to God. They didn't, and the thing apparently, according to Peter's working out according to the plan and purpose of God, God is never surprised by what man does. Now, friends, I'm coming to this fourth chapter of the book of Acts, and the subject here. Actually, is the result of Peter's second sermon. And the results were simply this, 5,000 are saved. Then the apostles were arrested by the Sadducees and put in prison. And the reason that they were put in prison, we'll see, they preached the resurrection. Now, let's notice chapter 4 now, and I'll begin reading. And as they spoke unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, I want you to notice something, friends, because this is indeed startling, but hasn't been called to your attention before. Who was it that led in the persecution of the Lord Jesus and finally in his arrest and his death? It was the religious rulers who were Pharisees. They were the enemies of the living Christ. Now, the leaders that take over, because there were currently quite a few Pharisees that were saved, we know Nicodemus was. I'm not sure what Joseph of Arimathea was one. He's not called that. We know that Saul of Tarsus was, and that there were many others of them that were brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Pharisees. Now, after they had gotten rid of Him, their enmity and their fight was over. And you do not find the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees who denied the resurrection, they become the great enemy now after the church comes into existence and there begins the preaching of the resurrection. Of Jesus Christ. Now, let me make this very clear to you today. I have never engaged in any movement of reformation to try to straighten up any place that I preached in. I've never felt that was quite my job. I know that when I was passed in downtown Los Angeles, a former movie star, you know, when after they've had their day and the star goes out comes a burnout sender. They generally go into some type of reformation work. I don't know whether that's a reaction or not, but this woman, she called me and asked me, would I be on a committee? And it would have to do with more or less trying to clean up downtown Los Angeles. Well, I agree it needed cleaning up, but I told her I would not serve on the committee. She was amazed. And she says, aren't you a minister? And I said, yes. And you are not interested in cleaning up Los Angeles? I said, I didn't say that. I just said, I wouldn't serve on your committee because I don't think that you're going about it the right way. And she won't know what was the right way. And I told her what Dr. Bob Shuler told me years ago. He said, you know, he said, we're called today to fish in the fish pond, not to clean up the fish pond. So this old world today is a place to fish. He said he'd make us fishers of men. And it's a place to fish. Well, we're not called upon to clean up the fish pond. But I tell you, friends, if you get a lot of the fish cleaned up, after all, it's the fish that are dirty in the fish pond, it will have a great deal to do with cleaning up. And for that reason, I have never been willing to get interested in that type of a thing. And so here, the Sadducees become the enemy. And I have found out that the biggest enemy to the preaching of the gospel are not the liquor folk. They've never fought me. The gangsters never fought me. Do you know where I had my trouble as a preacher? I had my trouble with so-called religious leaders, liberal, and those that claim to have been born again, some of them. They actually became enemies of the preaching of the gospel. And it was amazing to me to find out how many wanted to destroy this radio ministry we had at the beginning our worst antagonists they were not gangsters they were not the unsaved it happened to be those that were religious leaders by the way you know these sadducees are the meanest of all of them and they're about us today they actually are the ones who deny the supernatural they deny the word of god either by their lips or by their lives that's very important to see. Now, will you notice, the Sadducees came upon them being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, that's what got these men in trouble. You can preach Jesus, friends, and make him a nice, sweet little individual, sort of a Mr. Milk You won't be in trouble. But you preach him as the mighty Savior who came down to this earth, denounced sin, and who died on a cross for the sins of men and then rose again in mighty power, then you're in trouble. That's the message. And this is the message that these men brought. And as a result, now they are being brought before the Sanhedrin. Verse 3, they laid hands on them. Put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. How be it? many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. Now, they were there at the beautiful gate of the temple, actually next to the women's court. Now, if there were five thousand men there that believed, how many women and children do you suppose might have believed? I don't know, but there were 5,000 men that believed. There were that many that turned to Christ. Now, no one has ever experienced this type of a turning to Christ. That's the reason I've always been reluctant to criticize Simon Peter. You can't help but love the man, but he was mightily used of God. Now, when you say 5,000 here were saved and added to the church, Let's say this is not an evangelistic meeting where figures are turned in rather carelessly. These are genuine. These are 5,000 actually saved. Nothing like this on record from that day down to the present. And I don't think that it'll ever be exceeded in our day. That is, long as the church is in the world. Now, will you notice, verse 5, "...came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest... And Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Now, we've had to do with this crowd before. And here's this sneaky fellow in the background, Annas and Caiaphas. These are the two men who condemned Jesus to die. Now, verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, that is, they set Peter and John, they asked, by what power or by what name have ye done this? Now, notice that. They are brought now before the Sanhedrin, and it's by what power and by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled, notice this, with the Holy Spirit said unto them. Now, notice, friends, he wasn't baptized with the Holy Spirit here. He'd already been. He was Filled with the Holy Spirit. You and I need the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that we should go after. That's something that we should devoutly want. But you don't carry and wait for the baptism of the Spirit. That took place on the day of Pentecost when they carried and waited. Today you don't have to wait. If you will turn to Jesus Christ, you are baptized, put into the body of believers. At the same moment you are regenerated. And Simon Peter does a good job here, by the way, of speaking to these men. Up to this time, every time he opened his mouth, he put his foot in it. But this time, I tell you, he has those feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's saying the right thing. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel... "...if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he's made whole? Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole." Now notice this man, Simon Peter. He says two things. He was crucified. He was raised from the dead. Notice the scripture that he uses. This is the stone which is set at naught of you build us, which has become the head of the corner. Now, Simon Peter makes it very clear that the stone is Jesus Christ. On this rock, the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church. What is the rock? The rock is Christ. And here he says, this is the stone. What is the stone? The church? No. Simon Peter? No. The Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified and God raised from the dead. He's become the head of the corner. This man makes it clear that the resurrection is central to the preaching of the gospel here. And you'll notice now... In verse 12, this is a great verse, "...neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." Now go back to his birth. You'll call his name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. He's the Savior. It's at the name. And when you accept the name You accept all that it implies in the person that is involved. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he makes it clear, and I'd like to make it clear, and I'd like to emphasize, it. when you come to him, my friend, you come to him for salvation and that there is none other name under heaven. The law can't save you. Religion can't save you. A ceremony can't save you that only one, the name of Jesus. And that name of Jesus is the person who came down to this earth, called Jesus, because he's going to save his people from their sins. And when you and I come in faith to him, why, we are saved. And there's no other place to turn for salvation. Isn't it interesting that in the long history of this world, with all the religions of the world today, and all the dogmatism that these religions have, not one of them offers you a sure salvation. I talked to a man. In fact, he married an aunt of mine. He was an uncle by marriage. And he was a preacher in a certain church that believes in baptismal regeneration. You have to be baptized. I asked him the question one day. I said, look. Now, if I am baptized, as you say, will you assure me, or will that assure me, that I'm saved? Will I guarantee my salvation? No, he said he couldn't quite do that. Well, My friend, may I say something to you today? There's none other name under heaven whereby you must be saved, and if you come to him, you're saved. That guarantees your salvation. Now, this... Is a great message of Simon Peter, and this is a fine note to conclude that message before the Sanhedrin. Now notice, verse 13, "...now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men," that is, they hadn't been to a theological seminary, "...they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus." Now, they noted that these men had been with Jesus." Well, to have a life that somehow or another calls attention to Jesus. Verse 14, "...and beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But were they moved? Oh, no, they weren't moved at all. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, Now, this is their conference. What shall we do to these men?" For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Even the Sadducees in that day could not deny that a miracle had been performed. You see, you've got to be a liberal living in the 20th century, removed from there several thousand miles, for you can deny miracles. If you'd been back in that day, Mr. Liberal, You'd been hard put to it. The liberals in that day said, we cannot deny it. It's taken place. Now, somebody says, if I could see one, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. This crowd didn't. You got the same kind of human nature. The problem is not in your mind, as we've said before. The problem is in your will and your heart. It's the heart that is desperately wicked. It's not the one of facts. It's the condition of the human heart. Now, verse 17, now they're plotting but that it spread no further among the people let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called him and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, notice Simon Peter's answer to that, by the way. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more, than unto God judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was about 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. Now, you would think that These men, the Sanhedrin, would be softened themselves by this. But they were not. They were hard as nails. Their hearts are hard. Now, notice verse 23 here. You have here the release of Peter and John, and they returned to the church. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, is the report of Peter and John, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Now, this is a great meeting of the early church. Never was the church in the spiritual condition as it is here. And never, never has it been to such a high level and the key to it, I believe, is in their prayer. To me, it's not only a prayer, but it's a praise to God. And they said, Lord, thou art God. You're the creator. Friends, that's something today that I'm not sure the church is sure of. The Lord is God. (laughs) Are you sure about it? Are you sure that He's God today. Are you sure that Jesus is God today? Are you? That's pretty important. And that's where the power is lost in the church. The church is fumbling. church is not sure. The church is always talking of methods, always trying this gimmick and that gimmick. And if we do this or that, we'll be able to get the people, or maybe we can do this. And the church in suburbia today And downtown has become a social club. It's a religious club. It's not a powerhouse anymore. It just doesn't seem to be that. Now, the early church was sure he's God. Then they go back to the second psalm, "...who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together." against the Lord and against his Christ. And this was the beginning of the fulfillment of Psalm 2 is when they crucified Jesus Christ. But that hatred of him and of God has been coming down through the centuries for 1,900 years. And just like a snowball, gathering size and momentum, and it'll finally break in a mighty crescendo upon this earth in the final rebellion of man against God. Notice this. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. And you know, I'm moved by this. This is a great praise and prayer service, and they were all with one accord. They were unanimous. I don't think they all prayed at one time, but I tell you, whoever led in prayer, the rest of them were amen in it. And the interesting thing is, the kind of prayer we would have prayed today would have been, they did not pray for the persecution to cease they prayed for courage to endure it, Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. I tell you that early church friends was something a little different than the church today. By stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus, the power, of the early church. Verse 31, "...when they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness." It was the condition of the church that made this possible. "...and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart, one soul, neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common." Now, this didn't last very long. It's quite obvious. Carnality came into the church. Verse 33, "...and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus." That's the heart of gospel preaching. "...and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, brought the prices of these things." to the feet of the apostles, laid them down. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, we introduced to him. His name means the son of consolation, a Levite into the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this was due to the spiritual condition of the church. Now, it's nonsense to say today we should put this into effect Because if you did, friends, you'd have chaos. Why? Because the thing that you must have, first of all, is the spiritual level that this church had. We don't have it today. Let's be honest and face up to it. Oh, how we need to come into a closer relationship to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we want to note as we come to chapter 5, we're continuing now to see the effects of this great sermon that Simon Peter gave. And here in chapter 5, we are introduced to the first defection in the church, and it's followed by the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, we notice here, at least when we left off last time, we were introduced to to a man by the name of Barnabas. And Barnabas will be before us again. He's one of the wonderful saints in the early church. A man of God, one of the first missionaries. He was the first partner of the apostle Paul, and they went into the Galatian country, a difficult area, and yet God marvelously blessed their ministry there. Now, this man gave, apparently quite a sum of money to the church. He made a generous contribution, and everyone was talking about it. I guess he received a great deal of publicity and a certain amount of notoriety about his generosity. Well, the early church, you see, they had things common, and this will reveal the fact that they were in a high spiritual level to be able to do this. But now the defection that comes in, and it reveals why this couldn't continue and didn't continue, just simply because of the old carnal nature that is in mankind. Now, will you notice? It says, I'm reading now chapter 5, verse 1, "...but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession." It's obvious that they're imitating Barnabas. They saw that he got a certain amount of publicity. They thought it'd be nice if they got a certain amount of publicity. They wanted it. And I have found that there are people who give, and they give in order to be noted. I recall having a meeting years ago in Pasadena when I was a pastor here, called a meeting of certain men. To start a Youth for Christ movement. We started the first one on the West Coast here in Pasadena. And so at that meeting, we were going to ask folk to give. And then we decided that would not be public. But one man said, he said, now, a certain man, he'll not give unless you give him an opportunity to speak out publicly and let everybody know what he's giving. And it's quite interesting. This man, he gave a very small amount. He told someone later that he went to the meeting with the idea of giving about ten times that amount. But he, see, expected to be able to stand up or raise his hand when I would ask, who will give $500? You see, that's still in human nature today. And that's the condition of Ananias and Sapphira. But they kept back a part of the price His wife also being privy to it, and they brought a certain part, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, there's nothing wrong with the fact that they kept back part of it. They had a right to do that. The property was theirs. We are today in the church. We're under grace. You're not constrained to give any certain amount. Somebody say a tenth. Well, this early church, they were given everything. And these two, they kept back part of it. Now, they had a right to do that. Their problem, their sin was they lied about it. They said they'd given all when they had not given all. I don't like to have people sing a song that talks about putting my all on the altar. All on the altar I lay. Because I tell you, that makes a bunch of liars out of a great many people when you sing that song. We need to be very careful today. As we said before, let's be careful about what we vow to the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira, their actions were perfectly legitimate. They had a right to sell it. They had a right to keep all of it if they wanted to. But they lied about it. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land. Now, it wasn't the fact that he kept back part. He lied about it. That was the sin of this man and his wife. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto man, but unto God." Now, there are those today that deny that the Holy Spirit is God. But you notice Simon Peter thought so. In fact, he knew so. He says first to Ananias, Satan's put it into your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now he says here, thou hast not lied unto man, but unto God. The Holy Spirit is God, you see. Verse 5, and Ananias hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. Now, there are those that today give Simon Peter credit, or they blame him, for the death of this man Ananias. I want to absolve him of this crime. Simon Peter was probably as much surprised as anyone when Ananias fell down dead. I don't think he knew what was going to happen to him at all. Do you know who struck him dead? God did it. (laughs) You want to bring charges against God? Why don't you call up the FBI and tell them that God is guilty of murder? Well, may I say to you, if you can give life, you have a right to take it away. This is God's universe. We are God's creatures we breathe his air. We are using his body that he gave us. And my friend, he can take it anytime he wants to. And who's going to question him? You can call up the FBI all you want to, but it won't do you better good, because they're not going to be able to arrest him. He's not guilty of a crime. God, though, was the one responsible for the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Now they fall down dead. Verse 6 now of chapter 5 of Acts. And the young man arose, wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much? And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Now Simon Peter knows what's going to happen to her. He did not know what was going to happen to Ananias, but it's quite obvious what will happen to this woman. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, yielded up the ghost, and the young man came in. "...found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things." Now, the thing about this that amazes me is the fact that a lie such as these two were living could not exist in the early church. The church was so holy, so spiritual... That the liar to God could not stay in the church. Now, that's different also than today. Simon Peter had a spiritual discernment also that was amazing. That also is lacking today. I was very much amused that a young man came to me in a Bible class not long ago, and he said to me, and he did it with a little embarrassment, he said he had the gift of discerning of spirits. He said he could tell error. And then he quoted one of the worst heretics that there is today. I was rather amused at it. I questioned him again. I said, you really feel like you have the gift of discerning of spirit? You know truth from error. Oh, yes, said he did. I said, do you approve of the man that you've just quoted? Oh, yes. Well, then I said, I don't believe you have the gift. You just think that you have the gift. Now, the early church had it. And this could not exist. Now, today, if they were dropping down dead who lied to God today in the church, I'm telling you, we'd have a lot of funerals. The undertakers would really do a land office business. But they get by today. The worst kind of a hypocrite can get by today in our Bible churches. They're not good at coming to Bible study. They don't like that, I've discovered. But they really can exist in the church and do. Now, will you notice here, these Christians were not living on the high spiritual level of the early church. That is, Ananias and Sapphira. Although they were saved, when they lied to the Holy Spirit, they are removed from the company of believers. They committed the sin unto the death. There is, John says, a sin unto the death. They committed it. Now, the amazing thing, and I repeat it, is that this sin could not exist in the early church. That was the holiness of life in the church. And Peter was just as much surprised as anyone when Ananias fell down dead. And the power, though, will continue in the early church. And multitudes are saved, but the church will never be as pure After this experience, as it was before, before they had all things common, this just about ruined it. And we'll see what is coming in in the next chapter. Now, will you notice? The apostles will exercise the apostolic gifts. Now, I'm reading beginning at verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now do you note that it is the apostles who have the gifts of healing, the gifts of miracles. They have the sign gifts. They did many signs, and they did it among the people. Verse 13, "...and of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them." Many were being saved, verse 14, and believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes both of men and women. It's quite obvious that there were, by 300 A.D., there were literally millions in the Roman Empire that had turned to Christ. Verse 15, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. Now, the multitudes do this, shall I say, the ignorant multitude, the mob does this. Simon Peter wasn't going around casting shadows. That's a business he was not in. The crowd thought, since they had such power, that if he'd just get in the shadow of the man, that there'd be something. That's superstition, of course. Simon Peter didn't do this. Verse 16, "...there came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one." May I say, compare that to modern faith healers. They never heal all of them. Have you ever noticed that? The apostles had signed gifts, friends. No one else since then in the church has had those gifts. And when they heal, they heal everybody. They emptied the hospital. And this was the power of the early church. You see, they have no New Testament at this time. Not a book has been written at this time. And the authority must rest now with the apostles. Paul said that the church is built upon Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone and upon the apostles. They were witnesses of these things. Now, will you notice the apostles exercising these gifts? We are told in verse 17 here, Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is of the sect of the Sadducees. You notice that now? The Sadducees are still leading in the persecution. It was the Pharisees that led the persecution against Jesus. It's the Sadducees that led the persecution against the early church. And they were filled with indignation. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So now the apostles are arrested for the second time, and they're put in prison. Now, will you notice? But an angel of the Lord, not the angel, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, was none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. But now he's the man in the glory. (laughs) He's up at God's right hand, and he's the one that's doing all of this. That's the important thing to note. And today he's got paralyzed hands and feet down here in this world in the church because they're not moving for him. I tell you, he wants to move today through his church, and he wants to move through you and me if we'll permit him. So here it's an angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, "'Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life.' When they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison— They returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors, but when we had opened, we found no man within. And friends, that happened at the resurrection of Christ. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. He was out before the stone was rolled away. The stone was rolled away to let those out in, just as it took place here. And when the high priest, and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things. They doubted of them, whereunto this would grow. Now, verse 25, "...then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the man whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers, brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned." These men are being listened to now, you see. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intent to bring this man's blood upon us. Why, you have filled Jerusalem. They were good witnesses. They were real missionaries in Jerusalem. The gospel was to go out to Jerusalem, and it has. Verse 29, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. We're not doing this to obey you. We're obeying God. Verse 30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. And I have you note that that he was hanged on a tree. And I can't go into that. I have a little book. Many of you have it. The cross was never called a cross as we think of it today, and upright with a cross piece, a crossbar. It was just a piece of wood stuck up. It was a tree, and that's the word for it. Verse 31, "...him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins." The message is still going now to the nation Israel in Jerusalem. Verse 34, Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little pace. They excused the apostles now. He said, I'd like to speak to the Sanhedrin. He was the teacher of the apostle Paul, by the way. An outstanding man, this man Gamaliel. And he said unto them, ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves. What ye intend to do is touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all even as many as obeyed him were dispersed. Now, he gives examples, you see. He said, don't persecute these men, because this will come to naught. Verse 38, listen to him. Now I say unto you, refrain from these men. Let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it'll come to naught. (laughs) He's giving sage advice. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. This is remarkable, by the way. And time proved that this was of God, of course. Verse 40, And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And friends, if the men are innocent, then they should be let go. If they're guilty, they ought to hold them and punish them, not beat them and let them go. This was a sorry subterfuge, by the way. That is the problem today, that gray line between guilt and not guilt. The court's today letting them off by giving some light sentence. My friend, if they're guilty, they should be punished. They're not guilty, they should be let go. They don't need a light sentence. That's no good. How foolish we are today. And this is what they did then. They should have listened to Gamaliel a little more carefully. Now, verse 41, and they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Just look at these apostles. Aren't they marvelous? They're rejoicing that they could suffer. And daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Friends, what is the gospel? It's Jesus Christ. It's a person Oh, how important it is today to have him. Do you have him? You either have him or you don't. You either trust him or you don't trust him. He's either your Savior or you don't have a Savior. That's what we've learned so far.